Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Matthias and Sven, managing partner and partner of Virio Ventures, an early stage VC investing in seed and pre-seed highly scalable startups that drive electrification in the energy, mobility and smart city space. Matthias has served five years as Managing Director of Energy's Corporate Venture Capital Activities Building and Managing an Investment Team and Portfolio with a dedicated investment volume of 130 million euros with investment activities in Europe, Israel and North America. And Sven has been 20 years with McKenzie & Company in the electric power and natural gas practice, leading practices in Germany and Japan. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Matthias Sven, welcome to the European VC podcast. It's very nice to have you here today. How is everything on your side? Great, thanks. We're happy to be here. Indeed. Awesome. So as usual, uh, we like to start with a quick intro. And so this one, I'm going to start with a little small detail that I found super cool, which is the origin of, of Virio's name, because I do think it also reveals a bit about Virio's focus. So what is the origin of the name? Absolutely. Vireo actually is a small green bird that you would find in the new world from Canada all the way to Argentina. And it's also the Latin word for green and new and fresh. And since we are um, targeting sort of a green market and want to make the world a greener world, we picked that name. Yeah, I think if we look at a geographical focus, our focus is Europe. Um, so we would do opportunistically something beyond Europe if it's pretty interesting and there are synergies. We focus exclusively on early stage. So pre-seed, seed until Series A, because there we can bring most value. We focus on everything that is around electrification. So meaning all sectors where electrification is driving net zero targets, which basically is more or less everything. Because you either electrify or you do green hydrogen, and green hydrogen is indirect electrification, because you need to have renewables in first place. And I think, therefore, our focus sectors is energy supply, being it renewables or green hydrogen, it's e-mobility, it's e-logistics, it's everything around green buildings, green cities, and it's also about green operations, um, if you think about small and medium businesses and industrial businesses. I was just reminiscing here and, and remembering the first time I spoke with anyone from your team that I spent a lot of time doing a mental market map of where you guys were. And I remember asking, so what is the difference between you guys and Fund X and Fund Y and Fund Z and whatever? And I remember mapping out a bunch of climate funds and then mapping out a bunch of kind of what I would call urban tech funds, right? And I found your replies quite interesting, uh, to be honest, in terms of how you, how you position differently or similarly to these different types of players, because there are overlaps in both, but there are also slight differences. So I'd love to hear you guys reply to that. Yeah, I think um, we do have that really unique space and focus uh, in early stage um, energy. Um, and I think energy certainly is a broad space. And as, as Sven just mentioned, yeah, it covers um, many, many, many areas Yeah, from the energy supply all the way through the use of the energy, be it mobility, cities, and so on. And that's where you'll find the overlaps. However, 
Vireo is, is the only fund that's early stage with that very, very specific focus on energy. And, you know, as you mentioned, there's lots of players out there and funds out there that do climate, that do impact. And of course, they would also look at energy, but they don't also have that background as we do with sort of a senior partnership and all partners coming from the energy space. So we can very early assess maybe good products, good technology, good business models. And also what we see is that if you look at the deal flow, that, you know, pieces are sort of coming together. Uh, like a puzzle, because as I said, the energy world is a very complex world and involves many, many areas. And so we can identify the relevant pieces of the puzzle and put them together. Whereas potentially yeah, a prop tech fund, for instance, would really solely focus on solutions that are sort of in a building or in a given building. And we would look, look you know, we'll approach it rather sort of from a broader perspective from the energy space. I love to ask because when does it make sense to actually go really deep on a vertical and when, when should you be broader? And then there's the obvious question always, when there's only one that does <laughs> what you do, is that then because you maybe shouldn't be do, going that focused? What, so what is your kind of the typical pushback that you, get, that you get from others and what are your own reflections as well on whether you should only do energy or you should also do the more adjacent industries? I mean, I guess um, there's there's two elements to that. The first one is, I think actually our space is, I wouldn't say crowded, but I think it's pretty full if you go with ticket sizes of 5 million. So we have a lot of specific funds in that field with whom we obviously work because we are essentially their deal flow vehicles and they essentially give us deals that are too early for them. And I think... If you do early phase deals, you need to um, have a very specific expertise because you are very early in and you need to understand whether what the companies are doing has any chance of being successful or not. This is why we are a pretty senior team because I think most funds don't have effectively that capacity to really work with teams at that early stage to help them up because usually actually we work together with business angels. But we basically say because we can add a lot of value and usually when we go into seed or series A, we usually have already made five to 10 times returns. That's a space we find highly attractive and therefore we say we do this, although we know that the management fees wouldn't actually justify it. But clearly we think that therefore the financial returns we get out of that are significantly higher. I was just kind of checking here an interesting slide of your pitch deck, which you guys very kindly shared with us in advance of this recording. Thank you for that, by the way, which was about your value proposition, right? And I think, you know, don't get me wrong with this statement. I think it's, it's some of these things are like common things that every single pitch deck of any single VC has. But others, I'd say, are a bit slightly different and, and, and I guess maybe unique to what you're doing in the space you're investing in. As an example, you highlight a, an area called corporate access, right? And I think talking about corporates and ventures is something that we do a lot, and it's always uh, somewhat interesting, but somewhat kind of us kind of stating what everyone already knows. But what I think is interesting is is you clearly position yourselves as being early stage, right? You, you yourself, Matthias, said that that's, that's part of your differentiation, right? Being the, one of the only players uh, playing this early in this space. And then merging that with working with corporates might seem, at least to me, a bit of um, the association for me isn't clear. So I'd love, I'd love to ask you maybe, maybe a very broad question on that, on that point, which is why is that something that you highlight yourselves in, in part of your value proposition? And I'm not saying it's central. I'm saying it's one of the things you highlight. Uh, but also, how does that work for you guys uh, in this specific sector? 
So the thing is that, I mean, I fully agree. I mean, it's, I mean, corporate access, working with corporates and startups, you could probably do an entire podcast by itself. Yeah, with all the challenges and things you would find doing that and, and making making you know make, making that reality number one because you said you know how would that fit if we invest early stage but at the same time offer introductions to corporates and i assume what you mean is that you know isn't that too early yeah i mean wouldn't the startup not need to be a bit more mature and that's certainly true could be it depends a bit on where the product is where the startup is and it's in its life cycle but having said that, of course, we'll you know we'll invest and we stay on board as an investor. So if we invest pre-seed, obviously we'll you know hopefully we would then also invest into into the seed run all the way to Series A, and then that offering towards the startup, opening doors to corporates, this remains to be there. So I think, of course, we need to see when is a good time, but then we could do it. It doesn't mean that you know whenever we invest in a pre-seed company, we'll immediately connect that to a corporate. It does have to make sense, obviously. Yeah. But it is like, you know, if we if you find, you know, if we invest into companies, um, then that, you know, we, we showed our ideas to, to to corporates, to energy players. And um, yeah, there's the feedback of obviously, ah, let's, you know, let's have a chat with the company. Let's maybe try to see if we can do a, a small project together. And, and then, you know, that gives us that feedback that our approach actually works. Yeah, and maybe adding, I think what we are not trying to be is an outsourced CVC in a sense, or an outsourced corporate, uh, broader corporate VC. I think what is helpful for startups is actually to, to test with friendly corporates is what they are developing, something that in the future the market and the industry is going to thrive on. So that, I would say, typically informal checking is actually quite helpful. I would never honestly recommend usually an early stage startup to work closely with a corporate because with that <laughs> governance processes, that's not going to work. But to having that feedback loop and understanding, okay, so if we really want to scale at some point in time in the energy industry, you will work with these big players um, and they will go to their customers. And therefore having that feedback loop to see what of what we are doing is can potentially later be a partnership with one of them or basically, where can we um, change our product offering so that we actually not overlap and go in a, in a, in a very big red ocean, but um, essentially go into areas where obviously the corporates will never go into. That's actually quite helpful if you know that early on. Part of, of your thesis is very much on you know this topic of electrification being very much transversal to industries, right? Yeah. So even though it's specialized, right, it's not niche, right? That's part of it, at least from where I'm standing. What I have always kind of, seen and, and witnessed myself as corporates struggling a bit in understanding is that startups are living organisms that are very nimble and shift and change and a fintech industry might actually end a uh, fintech startup sorry might end up becoming a medtech company right over time and we've and, and that's probably why i brought up this question of working with corporates when you're investing at such an early stage right uh, that's what, what, what i was curious so maybe let me ask you how early do you guys go into the startup? Like just understanding what's the stage? How do you guys define early stage? What is the sweet spot for you for an investment? Well, we go in, in as you mentioned, early stage. Early stage, we mean pre-seed. And pre-seed essentially means there has to be a team and there has to be a startup company being formed. So we wouldn't sort of invest in a single kind of founder with just an idea on a piece of paper. And we have seen people like these coming around with decent presentations, but not not more of that. So we would require to have it. there's more to that. Yeah, having a a product that's nearly finished or a service or a software 
ideally also already we understand you know if there's interest in the market and there's those conversations potential customers clients and there's a certain feedback so early stage we mean there has to be more than just like a group of founders and a piece of paper but also you know an evolving uh, product service or software i'd love to ask you guys and this is taking it a bit in a different direction but we are <laughs> really looking at at a time where energy couldn't be more in the flux everyone all of a sudden talks about both energy transition we've done that for a while because of climate reasons but also energy security and i'm curious to hear if you've seen the same uptick in interest around your fund and the startups that you work with i think we do or we do for one is that not only once I've heard feedback from investors that kind of said, well, I wouldn't necessarily have looked into that space like a year or 18 months ago, but now since the energy crisis, I totally get it, Yeah, what we need to do. And you're right. I mean, we are talking for years and years about energy transition. It, it's happening slowly, but now where we have a crisis coming on top of it, people are really waking up. Yeah, And then just figure, I mean, like going back 10 years, ago, maybe 15 years ago, when, when I started in the energy space, people thought it's super boring because you know, it was just there, it was cheap, you could just plug in all the devices, you didn't need to care about. And all of a sudden, people are just waking up yeah, and understand that we, are in a, we need to transition to a different world here. And then maybe adding on that, um, I think also on the founders and startup side, I mean, I started this this, this corporate fund in 2015-16, and I'm, I'm astonished by how the quality has evolved over time. I mean, back then, it was all about smart home. It was about maybe peer-to-peer trading using the blockchain because blockchain was kind of, you know, hype back then already. It was about energy disaggregation, so allowing different services to the end consumers. But we see now much deeper tech and ideas and business models really around that energy transition. Um, and that's a quality we see right now, even with early founders um, and early startups, that at least I haven't seen like five, six, seven years ago. Are you seeing more startups working in this in a space that's directly connected to the current energy crisis? Or is it more on the LP side that you've seen an uptick in interest? And also customer side, of course. But. No, I think both. I do yeah. think there is startups. I mean, let's. I mean, if you look into our, let's say, let's say portfolio and, and, and the angel investments we 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 did a few years ago. I mean, of course, there had been companies with business models that had started without knowing that we would run into that energy crisis. Yeah, certainly, you know, it's you know, it's a good timing for them because obviously now you know their product or services in much more demand than it might have used to be you know, um, so that's that's one thing and certainly also i would assume that we'll see a number of startups that specifically because on the back of the crisis you know start putting together new companies and on the on the investor side yes i mean i i just talked to a sort of um mlp um an hour ago and um yeah i mean that they, they totally get it and also i think that space for them is super interesting yeah and i mean as we all know i think fundraising certainly hasn't become easier these days that's certainly a space where um, there remains some some interest from a piece. I have a completely off-topic question. <laughs> Which is, for it. You, and that's why I was hesitating, seeing if anyone had an on-topic comment or question. But you you brought up something about blockchain, and I and I and I want to want to bring up the topic of Web three slash crypto slash whatever we want to call it 
and climate slash energy and maybe ask the question, what role do you guys see uh, Web3 playing in electrification, generally speaking, across industries? And I'm asking this from, uh, let me phrase it correctly, yeah, as an idiot, because I understand very little about Web3, right? I can start. I mean, I don't know much about Web3 either, but um, if this includes blockchain, I think blockchain is, I think if we don't develop another digital ledger, is going to be pretty important because the challenge you have in the energy and in the green hydrogen ecosystem is that you have a lot of steps um, where you partially mix different sources of where a certain product is coming from. So if we take, for example, you take green hydrogen and produces in Australia, and I'm a, an industrial customer in Europe using it, you need to basically tell along the entire cycle, what's the CO2 footprint? And that includes building effectively the factory in Australia, building the ports. Then you might have certain mixing where, for example, blue hydrogen with green hydrogen is mixed in a tank. And essentially, all along the steps, you need to have a certificate which says, for the final customer, for a chemicals producer, for example, how much CO2 is now in my green hydrogen? And therefore, is it green hydrogen? Same is true for anybody who wants to do a PPA or buying CO2-free electricity. He needs to prove along the value chain that it, is, it has a CO2 amount or a CO2-free as claimed. Doing that, actually, blockchain is perfectly suited to do. And I don't think that has much to do with cryptocurrencies or anything in crypto. It's effectively a digital underlying technology, which is super helpful for doing that. I can't help but think that we're seeing a lot of digital ledger startups, um, and that's the core of blockchain, right? But either you do traceability, or you do, or you do green hydrogen, and then you you just plug in the traceability. No, I think you are working exactly at the intersection. So in green hydrogen, we have two three startups who work specifically in green hydrogen, but develop a blockchain blockchain technology. Time. Um, that works along this value chain. Or uh, we are currently pretty far um, with a startup in the renewables PPA space um, who's doing 24-7. I mean, where you basically have 24-7 clarity on what the CO2 yeah. is that you are getting out of the grid, even if you have a PPA. And that is using blockchain technology. But it's essentially, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a renewables trading platform, but leveraging blockchain for full real-time CO2 transparency and accounting. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting to see how that, that works, right? Because it needs to be very close to the technology, I guess, for it to actually work well. <laughs> uh, um, that's interesting because at first I would have thought that it's probably done by someone else and then you you plug in the digital ledger from another <laughs> startup. But, but I guess it doesn't work like that. Interesting. At, at least we haven't seen that. I mean, I'm honestly not a blockchain expert, so that might happen. But also with the renewables platform, the logic is we, we use that technology. I mean, it's, a, it's an energy guy. It's a trading guy. He uses um, with the CTO that technology now for renewables. And then um, maybe one, two years down the road when we have more green hydrogen available, that can then be used for green hydrogen as well. But I don't think he's planning effectively to use now to, to have the the blockchain in itself as a primary business purpose. I think the primary business purpose is to trade green energy while leveraging blockchain um, as the most efficient vehicle to do it. 
So I have another question on the tech front. Obviously, I think all our listeners can hear that David and I, David and I aren't great <laughs> techies, and that's also why we do LP investments and not and not tech investments. Um, but my question is. We're seeing a lot of discussion around nuclear these days, and I imagine that you guys are also quite knee-deep in, in nuclear. Am I right in that, saying that? Reasonably deep, y'all. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's dangerous to say that you're too deep, I guess. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm curious to hear what, what are you seeing on that front policy-wise and also adoption-wise? Do you see it picking up, or do you see it continuously being in this state of flux where, where there are just just as many pushing against as there is uh, pushing uh, for. I think that debate is not going to change in the near future. I think essentially the trade-off, honestly, is pretty simple. If we want to get to net zero or if we want to go to 1.5 degrees, we will need carbon capture yeah. and we will probably need nuclear. Yeah. I think it's as simple as that. And then I think um, the question you only can have is, okay, if I don't do the two, how much more money do I need to put in the other technologies? But I think that's even if you put more money in, you can't do it in that time frame. Or how, how much do I effectively sacrifice then certain CO2 targets or climate yeah. targets I have? And But I think it's also obviously a big social discussion. So I think you have, even in Germany, if you look, France um, is obviously extremely pro-nuclear. Germany is extremely... Um, against nuclear, that's not going to change. So I think we are not going to see a nuclear renaissance in Germany. While I think we clearly will see one, probably driven by new um, reactor technologies in France. So therefore, this this will go will be an ongoing, challenging debate between pros and cons, and, and people who support it and people who are furiously against it. I love that as as the perfect segue for the way we end our episodes, which is we always end our episodes with a quick fire round, guys. So first question I'll direct at uh, Sven. Let's do it like that. Sven, what areas, technologies, or sectors excite you the most that people around you don't really feel that excited about? I think it's number one, it's green hydrogen. I think everybody's talking about it, but I think uh, the the opportunity we have to drive down the cost curve similar to what we have done in, in offshore wind, where I've worked a long time and nobody actually thought we can get it down to onshore cost, which we have. I think it's a technology where we have so much skepticism, which I think it may be a bit early for venture capital for, for a lot of the stuff because we are an R&D. But I think um, probably in around seven to eight years' time, green hydrogen is going to be competitive um, with, a, with, with fossil fuels and therefore it's going to be a market that is going to be extremely big and extremely interesting. Well, maybe one one aspect that popped up um, a few times let's say in the past weeks, months, and that is really some data plays. Yeah, I mean, you would always assume, as we said, yeah, energy is about electrons and so on and so forth, energy production, energy consumption. But there's also a need for for pure data plays. Yeah, like. Um, I mean, be it for general energy data to pull that together and make sense out of it, <clears throat> or be it for battery. And because so far, I mean, if you want to change your energy system, it's going to be like in a in a more sustainable um, system. It's it's going to be a much more complex system than it is already today, because you would always have consumers, producers at various ends, and that all needs to be managed. Yeah, grid wise. 
production-wise, consumption-wise. And that also means you need to process a lot of data to be able to manage sort of this complex system. So then there's companies that do nothing else than, you know, pouring data together and make sense out of them um, and therefore to, to be able to manage such a system much better. So that's something that's at least I think is also quite exciting. Matthias, second question of the quick fire round, which is what are your top tips for other emerging VCs across Europe who are now fundraising for their funds? I'd love to return that question. Yeah, we probably could you've asked that not only us, but probably have gotten some, some pretty nice um, answers. I think it's 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 one you need to be have some patience. Yeah, it, it let's be realistic. It takes a bit of time to be emerging manager. You need a a huge size um, or pipeline or funnel of potential RPs you talk to. But at the same time, you know, have a very dedicated or very accurate strategy available. And you need that um, and that conviction at the end of the day, yeah, to be fully convicted sort of of the fun, of the idea, of the investment strategy. Uh, and uh, I can say, I mean, we are 100% convicted, if not even more, what we do. Um, and I think that's what you need um, because, as I said, yeah, things might take a little bit longer and you need some resilience for that as well. I love that you ended on resilience. That is something that come up comes up very often. Resilience and consistency probably being the, the common thread here in, in many of our episodes. Sven, third and final question of the quickfire. Uh, what has been the most counterintuitive learning you've had since you've been in the venture industry? I'm pretty new in the venture industry since two years. The, the most counterintuitive thing I found is that how quickly um, if a company or a startup runs not as expected, how quickly a lot of the VCs, the, even the early ones, effectively pull out while the business angel, I think, double down to effectively help the companies out. I also found the logic for it quite interesting um, and quite intuitive because effectively the VC says, this is why we have a lot of eggs in the, in, in the basket. If two or three go sour, it doesn't make sense that we spend 80% of them because obviously it's not going to fly. Um, and therefore we focus on what's going to fly while the business angel um, effectively say, okay, we have spent so much time here. Therefore we try everything we can do to effectively save it. That, that I found actually, even in early stage, because there obviously you have a lot of try um, and fail, uh, I found pretty interesting. That was pretty counterintuitive to me. Matthias, anything to add from your perspective? Well, I mean, it, it goes a bit in the same direction and maybe more speaking about more mature companies, because I remember, I mean, I started, you know, being a venture like six, seven years ago. And at that time, I mean, it's just natural that some of your investments do have, you create some problems, yeah, and face face trouble because they run out of cash. And what I found pretty counterintuitive that, you know, when we were kind of trying to pull together some sort of a rescue package or transformation or restructuring of a company, that really the big VCs, I mean, really good names, yeah, well-known VC firms, they just disappeared. I mean, they were just like gone from one day to the next, um, leaving, let's say, uh, the, the more rookie ones uh, left at the table um, and then designing a restructuring plan uh, with a with a startup. And, but then turning back to the table once that plan was ready to go for it. Yeah? All of a sudden, they all came back and said, well, okay, here we are, oh, we'll pull, pull some money as well. And that was for me a bit counterintuitive because I would have thought that, you know, also the big VC firms, they would just take care about the companies and actually try to put together in a decent restructuring package. But they just disappeared. That was, for me, was a 
something I wouldn't have expected, to be quite frank. We should have talked much more about that in this episode. <laughs> yeah. uh, Happy to do that. <laughs> nah, but it's it's interesting, right? Because it's um it's always case by case as well. But I think that there's there's definitely um, a difference in approach. Some some people stick very much by their companies as they also go up and down, and others say no. It's the winners that we double down on. We can't spend time on the ones that are on the way out. So in that sense, and I'm definitely, I'm leaning towards the, the latter, right? And I think that's the venture model, but I don't also recognize, and I think that that's also what you've seen the, the, the large players recognize, right? That, that the company can blow up, then get fixed and then come back, but they are, they don't have the time to try and fix it. Um, so, so they, they do have the money once the plan is there, they have the money to come in and try and bring it back to life. Uh, but they don't have the time to do. Do you think that that's what's been going on inside those firms or, or what, what has been your reflections, Matthias? Yeah, that, that was my reflection. Absolutely that point, which, you know, is a decent approach to a certain extent because, you know, you don't just have the time, the resources. It's part of the venture model. Yeah, it's, that's the business model. Yeah, you double down on the winners and don't spend too much time on your on your lemons. So that, that was my take, basically. At the same time, I mean, obviously, as you just mentioned, yeah, um, if, if they come back then, someone needs to do it, right? So then who does it? I mean, assuming you have a company, there's only VC firms in, they all just pull out and just walk away. So if no one takes care of then, you know, it's going to, you know, ultimately probably end in a pretty bad situation. But again, that could be just, that might be just be part of the business model. And then there's also the, uh, then you can say that the, the smaller venture firms have more at risk, right? In terms of uh, their own, also their own, you know, reputation, uh, given that index as an example, they can definitely live with a failed founder saying bad things. <laughs> Whereas if you're a new firm that has 10 inactive investments, then it's going to be a bit worse on your reputation if one founder says, well, you ghosted us as soon as we started having a problem, right? Um, Whereas a big and famed firm can easier carry that yes so that was some heavy reflections here in the end of the uh, quick fire round for those that stuck around i think that they uh, got some uh, uh, unfiltered uh, <laughs> reflections on the pros and cons of the venture model matthias sven thanks so much for joining us for this episode thanks for, so much for bringing up some reflections both on nuclear energy transition and on the behavior of big firms thanks for having us yep, thank you very much Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc.